Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Notorious, I'm Eric Rivenis. My guest, Michael Fido, has made the tragedy we're going to be talking about today his life's work. He started this project decades ago, conducting first-hand account interviews, doing research and gaining insight little by little until he was able to put together the book we are going to be discussing today, The Lynchings in Duluth, which will be released in a new edition by the Minnesota Historical Society Press on March 15th. That is our topic for today. Thank you so much for your time today, Mr. Michael Fido. Your book is an important piece of work in that you single-handedly brought this absolutely horrific event into the public consciousness again. When did you first hear about the Duluth lynchings, and how did this book come about? I first heard it from my mother, when I, I couldn't have been more than nine or ten uh, years old, I, I have lost oh, through the years the context for that. I, I have no idea why she would have brought it up. Uh, I speculate that it may have had something to do with the fact that, uh, that we lived about a mile or so from where that took place. I, but, but I really don't know. I, have, I can't remember why she told me that. In any case, it, it, it was just kind of there in, in my head. I knew that this had happened. And as a uh, young adult in my early to mid-20s, I began writing. And sometime about 1970, 71, somewhere back in there, I uh, thought that I was going to write a novel, which I've also forgotten about. I don't remember what my storyline would have been, but I do remember that at one point I thought that I would use this lynching as a scene in a chapter, and uh, the main character in this proposed novel was going to be there, as, as a, would have been there as a witness. And in order to get 
things correct, even though the account would have been fictional, uh, the actuality of the event needed to be accurate, and uh, I tried to find the book that I assumed someone had written about this episode 50 years before. And uh, I learned rather quickly that there was no such book. Libraries had never heard, not only never heard of a book uh, being written about this, but most of the librarians that I contacted in the state didn't even know that this had happened. Finally, there was a, a librarian at the uh, History Center in St. Paul who said that they had a small folder on this, and I would certainly be welcome to take a look at that, which I did. And then after that, I consulted uh, the newspapers of the era and was able to piece together the story. Well, I, I spent several uh, Saturdays in the library and I filled a spiral notebook uh, on notes about this event and, and then had an epiphany. You know, this story had never been documented. And uh, since I had uh, a great deal of information, I should be set about to do that, to document this event that occurred at the Ruth in 1920. And so I abandoned the novel and immediately set about to try to uh, piece together this story. So, so that's how it happened. It, it, it wasn't uh, my intent to do this to begin with, but uh, it, it certainly became uh, a strong force uh, as I uncovered incidents and, and, uh, and, and w was able to bring this back to public attention because it had been long forgotten. And in fact, it was, a, I suppose, kind of a chauvinistic thing about Minnesota that it was more or less officially forgotten uh, in, in the, the, the textbook history of Minnesota, for instance, in all of the editions up until uh, rather recently, this event was not mentioned uh, in state histories. And, in, and, and that includes another book called The History of Crime in Minnesota. It wasn't in that book either. So this had been, I think, both tacitly and officially uh, expunged from uh, from. Uh, are the consciousness of, of people who lived in Minnesota. Now, Duluth, for listeners outside of Minnesota, is a city which sits in the northeast part of the state on the shores of Lake Superior. Let's talk about post-World War I Duluth. What was life like there at the time, and what was the racial climate? Certainly, physical manifestations of racism must have been low in this northern part of a northern state. Well, absolutely. Uh, in fact, Duluth at that time was a city of about 100,000 people. And there were, and I have, I think I have this number exactly at long last, there were 483 African descendants living in Duluth out of a population of, a, of a, about 100,000. So it is possible that at that time, a person living in Duluth could have grown to adulthood and possibly never even seen a person of color. So there were very, very few, and, and as a result, there were virtually unheard of racial, uh, race-related incidents involving citizens of the city. But at the end of World War One, two things happened. It was kind of like uh, a perfect storm. Uh, one was that workers at the steel mill in Duluth were working for 25 cents an hour. 
and they realized that U.S. Steel had made significant profits during the war in these workers, but that they were entitled to a, a share of that. And so they threatened to strike for higher wages. In the meantime, the people from U.S. Steel, in order to head off this strike, were recruiting black cotton field workers in the South who were making 10 cents an hour, promising them wages in Duluth that would more than double what they were making, picking cotton. Now, they didn't bring up trainloads of of black field hands, but they brought up a few, and that was enough to quell the threat. In other words, you know, you guys can strike if you want to, but we can get all of these uh, black folks from the South to come up here and take these jobs who are happy to work for 25 cents an hour. And then you also had veterans returning from World War One, and uh, the U.S. involvement in World War One wasn't very long. Uh, they turned the tide of the war, but they weren't they weren't in battlefields for a very long period of time. And a lot of these veterans, um, you know, they got these parades in Paris, and, and they were they were heroes, and they liked that. That was heady stuff. And they got back, and, and things turned rather turned ordinary rather quickly back in Duluth. And they were itching for action of some sort, doing something. Wanted to be acknowledged. Uh, they liked that uh, that it happened after the war, taking ordinary jobs as fry cooks or meter inspectors, kind of ruled that out. And they had also seen American black GIs cavorting with uh, white women in France. And uh, they were offended by that. So you had these two elements all coalescing together at the wrong time when it was kind of heard throughout the community that a young white woman had been raped by uh, six black workers from the circus. And all of these feelings just kind of coalesced and you had this tragedy unfold. So let's talk about that. A young woman and man, Irene Tuscan and Jimmy Sullivan, decided to go to the circus, the Robinson Traveling Circus, which had set up on the Duluth waterfront on June 14, 1920. After the circus is over, it's nighttime, and they decided to take a stroll among the tents where they encountered a group of black men, circus workers, who were relaxing and shooting dice after the show. Can you talk about what might have happened next? Well, I can only speculate, but I, 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 my gut instinct indi- would, would say say this, and, and that that stemmed from uh, rethinking about the Emmett Till case back in the fifties, when he was brutally beaten and, and killed for allegedly having whistled at a, a, a white woman in a store. What I think happened in Duluth at that time was that uh, as they walked along, I think something like that happened. Somebody may have made some lewd remark or maybe a series of lewd remarks. And this young man, uh, Sullivan, could not defend her honor. Uh, He was outnumbered and he felt powerless to to do anything about it and and of course he was the one who reported this to begin with and i think that he he just decided he wanted to uh, make some trouble for those guys i don't think he anticipated that this was going to be the result 
that that they would be uh, that, that they would be killed, but I think that he hoped that there would be some some issue and, and they would get some kind of comeuppance for their uh, behavior toward him and uh, Irene. So Irene Tuscan and Jimmy Sullivan went home that night. Irene Tuscan went to bed. You speculate that they might have had a discussion about what had happened before parting ways, but we'll never be sure. When were the police notified that she was claiming that she'd been raped? Well, actually, they were notified that night. Uh, it's, uh, Irene went home to bed, and James went to work. And what, it was at work, he worked a night shift, and his father was the night superintendent at the docks in Duluth. And he told his father that Irene had been attacked. And his father then called the police. And so I sus- it was, I believe, sometime after midnight that the uh, police went out uh, to the circus grounds and stopped the train as it was heading toward uh, the Iron Range for performances uh, up there. They stopped the train and, and made a number of arrests. I think they arrested and brought back to the jail uh, more than a dozen men, 15 or 17 workers, and, and put them in cells. And, and everything just kind of moved forward, gathered steam from then on. And uh, the next night, the 15th is when this horrific event took place, witnessed by, according to newspaper estimates at the time, between five and 10,000 people who were on the downtown streets in Duluth. Right, right. So 120 men were pulled out of the train, lined up for identification, and as you just mentioned, maybe 15 or so were picked out. How did the police know who to take in? Well, they probably didn't. The ones that they dragged off were the ones who were identified by a foreman as having been in a particular area at the approximate time that this assault was alleged to have taken place. So those were the ones brought to the jail. There was no way that they could know for sure if they had anybody who might have done this or not, but they just took in these people who were uh, allegedly in the area where this was supposed to have taken place. So rumors of the supposed assault started spreading like wildfire through the city of Duluth the next day. You explain in your book how this happens, how this anger goes from a simmer to a boil through the afternoon. People are hearing all sorts of secondhand stories about what had happened to Irene, and many locals are are furious to, to the point where a mob begins forming outside of the downtown jail on Superior Street, where the men are being held. How did things escalate so quickly? Well, they were, they were spurred on. There were people who were uh, egging them on, including a fellow who had been driving a truck through the neighborhoods where that girl had lived and exhorting people to come with us and, and uh, join the necktie party. And uh, drove through neighborhoods and uh, managed to get uh, quite a number of folks to come downtown to uh, participate in in this. So that was one. But a lot of the people who were there now, when I when I say there were between five and ten thousand, there were that many people there. But they were not necessarily all participants. What happened when when uh, the attack on the police station and jail began was that 
there were folks who were downtown who had been working in downtown areas, and because of the great crowds in the street, their streetcars weren't able to get through to take them home, so they were stuck there. There were other people who perhaps had not heard any. I mean, you got to remember there was basically no media at all at the time. So other people who wanted to perhaps had gone to a movie or uh, some other event downtown had gone downtown, and once they got there, uh, saw that uh, you know there was large crowds and they just kind of hung around and 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 watched, even though some of them perhaps may have wished to have returned home, they weren't able to get out of there. So that made the size of the crowd extraordinarily large. And it, it was probably the uh, largest, or one of the largest uh, lynchings where there's a, a crowd observing that, that it ever happened in this country. So it becomes pretty touch and go in the police station. There are a dozen or so police officers holed up inside who are doing their, their best to keep the mob at bay. And they do so for quite a while. Yes. Well, you know, to begin with, that's true. There were only a dozen there when all of this began. I think they managed to get uh, most of the uh, police crew on duty uh, as this uh, unfolded, bringing the number of officers perhaps up to 30. But they were under orders to not use firearms, which, you know, if you've got, even if it's 30 cops against three or 400 angry people, and, uh, you know, you're going to be, you're outnumbered and, and certainly outmanned. And there's almost nothing you can do, especially if you are ordered by the Commissioner of Public Safety to not use firearms. And why did he order that? Well, he said later to a reporter, he thought that uh, if they fired into the crowd and, uh, and killed somebody or injured somebody, that the police would be under a, a great deal of attack uh, from, from voters and, uh, because they had done that. And also because he specified he didn't want to see the blood of one white person shed for these uh, Negroes. And so that was probably more the motivating factor than there might be public scrutiny of, of police action. Uh, if they had fired their weapons, left without that, without without being able to do that, you know, there was virtually nothing they could do. So, a real hero in the story is Sergeant Oscar Olson. Can you talk about him? Well, yes, I spent some time interviewing his uh, daughter back in the early 1970s, and uh, she uh, told me a, a good deal about his. His life, he had. He was a big man, and I guess you know, size and heft and strength was probably the only qualification to become a police officer. You had to be a big, tough guy, and and Oscar was that. He was a, a large man, six two or three, and he weighed about two hundred and seventy or eighty pounds, and he had boxed and wrestled professionally. So in that era he would have been the typical kind of guy that police forces were looking for, guys with muscle. But he, he also was a, you know, a, a man who tried to do his duty. And he pled with the officers to, uh, to, to take stands. And he himself continued to do that, even though he was not able to marshal any forces 
as this uh, this unfolded. Men were injured. They were hit by rocks and 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 just being physically knocked around by by the mob. And Oscar Olson stayed with it until the uh, until the bitter end, doing everything he could to try to turn the tide. And he had moments of temporary success, but uh, in the end, of course, was so badly outnumbered that uh, he also wore down. About uh, I think it was about fifteen or twenty years later, he was uh, he was killed in the line of duty trying to uh, uh, arrest someone on a robbery charge, I believe. This uh, criminal uh, had a weapon and shot and killed uh, Oscar Olson. So the mob finally breaks into the jail and makes their way to the cells where the men have been waiting in in terror for hours, uh, hearing the sounds outside. And they yank out, and it's, it's at random, it seems, three of the prisoners... Isaac McGee, Elmer Jackson, and Elias Clayton. The men spearheading the lynching attempted to coerce confessions, but the three men denied everything. Can you give us an idea of the atmosphere on Superior Street when these men were walked outside of the jail? Well, uh, they really weren't walked. They were dragged, kicked, and beaten all the way. It was a block away from the station. And... uh, this is hard to imagine, but there were people who wanted to, to, to get at them, who, who I think who wanted to be able to say later on that when he was taken into the street, I was able to get in a good punch, or I, I gave him a good solid kick, or I spit on him. All of those things occurred to these men as they, as they were brought up the, uh, up the hill to be uh, uh, strung up on that uh, lamp pole just below the Shrine Auditorium on uh, First Street in, uh, in Duluth. So it was, it was complete chaos, uh, screaming at them, swearing at them. And these poor guys were, of course, terrorized, terror-stricken, and knowing that what was going to happen to them. So it was, it, it was pretty horrific. We will be back after a brief word from our sponsors. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel! 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. So I asked you ahead of time if you wouldn't mind reading a couple of pages from your book, and you were gracious enough to agree. And I want to make sure listeners get a really good understanding of how insane this mob scene was. So this is a passage from Lynchings in Duluth at an especially tense moment when Isaac McGee, one of the three men, is taken from his cell, pulled through the street, and there's a priest as well who tries to intervene. Um... Whenever you're ready, sir. By now, the quivering, battered Isaac McGee was thrust forward toward the light pole. He stumbled and was kicked savagely. He rolled over, his mouth open, and was snatched up. The rope was lowered over his neck. Women and young matrons cheered and laughed at the crude wit of some of the youthful onlookers who sang and joked, See what you're coming to. Now hang gracefully. Show us some real style. The less you kick, the less you'll hurt. An intense rush of adrenaline propelled Father Powers, and with his sturdy hands, he tossed aside several men as he scrambled toward the pole. Those holding McGee stood back as the red-faced priest stormed forward, not merely to confront those with McGee, Father Powers climbed the pole himself. The mob fell uneasily quiet, preparing to listen to the priest. We're wasting time, someone hollered out, but was in turn silenced by those around him. Men, you don't know this man is guilty, Father Powers began, his voice carrying distinctly over the murmuring of the mob. Sweat glistened in his dark, curly hair, and had begun to run down his face, forming droplets on his nose and chin. I know this crime is the most horrible one, he continued, but let the law take its course. Some in the crowd booed, but they quieted when Powers held up his hand. It's not too late to stop this tragedy, men. In the name of God and the church I represent, I ask you to stop. There was a momentary silence before several men cried, To hell with the law! Lynch him, screamed scores of others. Remember the girl. 
Several men near the pole reached up and pulled Father Powers down, but he tried to mount it again. Men, I ask you... This time, the priest was rudely interrupted with cries of, Lynch him, string him up, the dirty black snakes. And Father Powers was toppled once more and pushed back within the mob. He made one more futile attempt to reach McGee as the young man was pulled to the pole again. McGee had seemed dazed moments before during Father Powers' attempt to save him, but he was fully conscious now. As the noose was adjusted around his neck, he shrieked, God be with me! I'm not the right man. He was hoisted to his feet, and the rope was drawn up, but he fell when the rope loosened. A thin, short man near him tried choking McGee, but was pulled back as the rope was refastened, and McGee was lifted up a few feet off the ground, just clear of the pavement. The crowd had pressed so close that as McGee gasped in his death agony, blood blown from his parted lips spattered on the faces of those near him. String him up so we can see, demanded the mob. But the rope was too short, and the body could be raised up only a few more inches. And now a new rope was run to the pole, carried over the head of a youth in a green shirt. He was grinning and accepted the cheers of the mob. Then 19-year-old Elmer Jackson was dragged to the pole. One of the men near the pole wore the uniform of the U.S. Navy, and stepped forward when one in the mob called, Let the sailor tie the knot. The sailor grinned awkwardly, then quickly fastened a noose about Jackson's neck. Jackson, however, did not struggle. His face was calm and without emotion as he gazed at the rope taut above his head. He stared out at the mob, and as he was positioned a, a bit to the right of McGee's dangling body, he drew a pair of dice from his pocket and faced the mob. I won't need these anymore in this world, he stated evenly, and threw them on the pavement. A young man picked them up and offered them back to Jackson. Well, you might want to roll them in the next, he said. The noose was cinched about his neck, and a cluster of ready hands drew his body up. As he went into dying convulsions, the crowd began to cheer and whistle. And as he died, his body was lowered a few feet, where it hung before the howling mob. So thank you for that. So let's talk about what happens next. The mob manages to lynch three of the six prisoners before they are stopped. Help finally arrives in the guise of the state guard who dispersed the crowd pretty quickly. Yes. Yeah, nobody wanted to hang around after that. I think that that had the uh, militia not been called out, the other three also would have, would have been taken. So the three who are still in the cells uh, would have the, uh, the militia to, uh, to thank for the fact that they were not also killed. And the militia did what it could to kind of get things cleared out. And, and uh, it, apparently the things that I'd read it indicated it didn't require a lot of effort at their clearing it out because when they were called, the, the crowd just began quickly moving away. So no, so nobody wanted to hang around after the militia was out. The lynchings, of course, make headlines. And one of the, the many things I found disturbing about this whole thing is that despite the lack of any evidence, no one ever questioned the girl about whether she was actually lying or not. Instead, the, the major argument was about mob justice versus 
justice in the court of law and whether mob justice could ever be justified? Well, I think in that era, it was a presumption of guilt, not a presumption of innocence. And there was there were all of these stories that they'd heard from, from the South. Lynchings took place in the South principally for the same reason, that there was a, a, a black male uh, who had uh, said something or who had allegedly done something to a white woman. And so the way that you that you protected uh, the virtue of white women was to uh, immediately set upon and kill the black male who had ravaged her. And in many cases, again, it would have been like Duluth where the, this kind of assault had probably not happened either. And, but, but there was no assumption that, that the, the alleged victim of the attack would have lied the assumption was, of course, this is what happened. And so there were no hard investigations of that. And and in the Duluth case, even the statement of the doctor who examined her and who found no evidence of rape, that was never printed in the mainstream press in Duluth. So for years after, most people believed that indeed she had been attacked by these men. Reasonable Duluthians, I'm sure, at the time were thinking, well, maybe this lynching should not have happened. But after all, they did a terrible thing to this girl. I mean, that was kind of the mood in the in the city. Even though it shouldn't have happened, it wasn't such a bad idea because they got what they deserved anyway. That's what I wanted to ask you about. When you mentioned the doctor, there were actually a lot of things that pointed to the fact that this rape did not occur. And a detective named Morgan was actually dispatched from St. Paul to Duluth to do an independent investigation. Could you explain the nature of that visit and his conclusions? Well, yeah, he he uh, was sent to uh, Duluth to uh, to conduct an independent investigation, and he was able to extract from the doctor the statement that he didn't think that this girl had been raped. I remember when I read that, that was really impelled me to keep going with this because now it wasn't just a, a, a lynching, but it was a lynching based upon a lie that uh, a girl had been attacked. And beyond that, it, it set me to thinking that the black folks I interviewed all those years ago who were alive at the time that this uh, episode happened, they all said, now when I'm talking about all, and I said maybe four or five uh, people I was able to talk to who were alive at the time of the, the uh, lynching and were still alive in the early 1970s, and they all said that there had never been any racial incidents. They never felt uh, singled out. Uh, they never felt... Uh, experience any kind of prejudice until after the lynching, until after this event. So that that their lives changed radically in the aftermath. And so did the lives of a great many uh, citizens of northern Minnesota. Besides the, the doctor's visit, could you summarize the other evidence that pointed to Irene Tuscan's fabrication of her rape? Well, the doctor exam uh, actually is the hard evidence 
Um, the rest is uh, somewhat to maybe largely circumstantial, though um, it's still nevertheless convincing. Uh, for ex example, Irene saying nothing about it to her parents upon her return home, uh, simply taking a bath and going to bed, although she did exchange uh, some words with her with her mother at that time. Nothing seemed to be amiss. And she seemed to, to be not the least bit troubled when she returned home following this alleged ass uh, assault on her. I have subsequently come across some additional information ab about her that uh, was withheld from me when I was attempting to look for transcripts in Duluth. People have subsequently been able to locate uh, some of that material. And apparently uh, she changed her story a number of times, uh, telling uh, investigators at first that she was with a group of friends at first, and then uh, she was asked uh, who those friends were, and and she said, well, she she didn't know their names. She'd just seen them around from time to time. And uh, yeah, again, it seems unlikely that you don't know the names of your friends. So there were things like this. And, and her inability to recognize, to definitely recognize any of those who attacked her, cast doubt on the, on the veracity of her, her uh, accusation. Now, this whole thing doesn't end after the lynchings themselves. Despite the lack of evidence and three men already hanged, the police still feel pressure to find the rapists. So once more, black men from the Robinson Circus are rounded up so Irene Tuscan and Jimmy Sullivan can make their identifications. But Irene really can't identify anyone by their face. She instead picked out a man named Max Mason only because he was the shortest there at five foot four. And she had told the police earlier that someone short had assaulted her. Right. She even admitted that. She couldn't tell what they looked like. She identified them by size and physique, she said. He, he probably didn't really have a chance. They knew they, there was somebody involved in this who was short. He may have been uh, on that back lot, and, and they were able to more easily identify him than the others because he was the shortest one there. I think that's how he got nailed. And another man as well, William Miller, is taken in. So Max Mason and William Miller are both tried for rape independently. The NAACP heads up their defense, hiring attorneys to represent them. Can you talk about the trials of Max Mason and William Miller and the eventual outcomes? Yes, Max Mason uh, had the NAACP attorneys. And uh, based upon what I was able to read from court transcripts, it seems to me that they didn't aggressively defend Max. I mean, I think they, they tried, but I, but it, even though none of this was said, the language and the way I, I read these transcripts, essentially it seemed to me that they were not disputing the fact that a rape took place, but they were saying that it may, you know, it may have happened, but Max didn't do it. And uh, they were unable to prevail with that kind of approach. Meanwhile, uh, when Miller came to trial, his uh, attorney was a man named Charles Scrutchins, who was from Bemidji, Minnesota. And, and Scrutchins went after the prosecution 
And he, you know, he even made the statement at the end that if this girl was ravished as she claims to have been ravished, she would be in a morgue. And because he he really was was very strong and aggressive, Miller was uh, was acquitted. Now Mason, who was not acquitted, of course, was convicted and sentenced to thirty years. And back in that day, thirty years meant the thirty years, but he only served four. And uh, I, I was unable to locate any record why that early release occurs. The only thing that uh, was in the files of the prison was that he was released on a particular date, and that was it. And furthermore, I was unable to uh, to track him anywhere. I, I made uh, a number of phone calls to people with the name Mason in his in his hometown of. I think it was Decatur, Alabama, and uh, none of them claimed that they were related to him. And so he just disappeared from uh, any records after his uh, release from uh, Stillwater State Prison. The piece of evidence that you write in your book was the smoking gun for jurors in the Max Mason trial had to do with venereal disease, uh, gonorrhea. Can you explain how that was presented at trial? Well, yeah, it was uh, it was revealed that she had gonorrhea and that Max had had gonorrhea, and uh, the conclusion was that he gave her uh, this venereal disease, and that was the clinching piece of evidence because the assumption was that she was a young woman of virtue and, and Max was a person of low repute, and he had this disease. Well, we do know that he was never treated for the disease. Now, I don't know if, if that meant that uh, this evidence was somehow fabricated. Probably not, because he admitted that he had had a disease, but that he was cured. And in the three or four months that he was in jail, waiting his trial, uh, he was not seen by a doctor. Meanwhile, her case was pronounced, I think, as an advanced case of gonorrhea. She wouldn't have had an advanced case within just a week or so of following this alleged contact with these circus workers. So that seemed kind of bogus, and apparently Max was never treated for the disease while he was in prison either. So it kind of casts aspersion on that whole bit of evidence. But you have to remember that people wanted to get this behind them, and they wanted to believe that something had happened and that the something that had happened was exactly the way uh, Irene and uh, and James had described it, so that the city could leave this with a clear conscience. Yes, you know, the lynching shouldn't have happened, but this is what happened to this girl, and we were finally able to nail this guy with uh, having done it. Now let's put it all behind us. So let's talk about the men who led the lynchings of Clayton, McGee, and Jackson the ones primarily responsible for their killings. No one actually served time for murder. No. Uh, three of them were convicted for rioting. and did a couple couple of years each. And that was it. There were, I think there were a couple brought to trial for murder, but they were acquitted. And um, after those acquittals, the prosecutor, believing correctly, I'm sure, believing that these were the, the main guys that got the mob going and, and uh, led the attack. And if we can't convict them, these others that we uh, have in custody, or, there's no way we can get a conviction for them, so there's no point in 
going forward with those. So that was that was essentially the end of it. So there's a really famous photograph of the lynching. Uh, it's in your book. Um, people can also find it on the internet. And a warning to anyone who does, it's pretty grisly stuff. Can you explain the photograph um, and and how it came to be? Sure. That that picture, which uh, if people look at it, it, it's the equivalent of oh, like a a, a group of guys had gone bear hunting and uh, they're posing around a trophy shot and in this case uh, of course the picture is not of a bear or a couple of bears but rather of three men that they have just hanged and people who notice the photograph they're taken by the fact that this looks very much like a photo that the people you can see the, the, the men around it have crowded into the shot, and it is as as though they they certainly wanted to be there. There was no fear of any uh, retribution later on for having participated in this. One of the men in the shot, and these are these are uh, kind of you would say a middle class group of people. You can see people are dressed for uh, you know an evening out, and uh, at least one of them, as I recall, the shot has a big grin on his face. So this is a trophy shot in a way, uh, horrific as it is. There were no flash cameras back in those days, so in order to light this scene in the first place, somebody drove an automobile and used the headlights for that automobile to light that scene. And a photographer arrived and had to set it up. It isn't light today where you just take out your phone and click and there it is. Um, he probably had to jockey around with this for several minutes before being able to get it. And then, as was done in the South when, when lynchings took place, this one also was turned into a postcard. And uh, it sold out very quickly in and around Duluth. So there was a, a demand for that as a postcard. Now, some good came out of all of this. The state finally passed anti-lynching laws the next year. What would you say is the lasting legacy of the Duluth lynchings, in your opinion? Well, in a negative, I think that was the root of of a lot of racist opinions and attitudes uh, in northern Minnesota, if not the state of Minnesota. There were so few residents of color in the northern counties of the state. I mean, you could have been born and raised in Duluth or northern Minnesota and grown into early adulthood, and the likelihood was very high that you might never have seen a person of color on the street. So these folks uh, probably didn't have any uh, overt signs of racism in in their own lives. But now they were in agreement with a lot of the Southerners who lynched blacks. And, and uh, these folks, young adults back in 1920, uh, I think passed these attitudes on to their children and grandchildren, uh, many of whom perhaps still hold those racist views. And these racist views were born of a lie that uh, these uh, unfortunate black circus workers had uh, raped a young white girl and and uh, the facts say otherwise but it was 
it was never really revealed in Duluth or northern Minnesota that the young woman was not assaulted. And so people have lived their lives thinking that this is, in fact, what happened. In fact, there's somebody who's, uh, who's putting things out on, on uh, Facebook and YouTube videos indicating that, that this woman was, in fact, raped. But there's no evidence to support that, and nor does he and his screeds indicate that uh, where any of this information that he might have that she indeed was raped comes from. Also, I think the legacy is uh, also that racism isn't confined to a region. It's universal, and uh, extreme violence and hatred can occur anywhere. But the positive legacy is the memorial site in Duluth and uh, the people who have worked very hard to get that up, hoping that it will foster a racial reconciliation among uh, people of goodwill. They also have created a, uh, a curriculum on the incident that any school teacher in the country can download and use for uh, classroom discussions. Thanks again for your time today. Well, thank you, Eric. I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Again, The Lynchings in Duluth by Michael Fido is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble Online, and in Minnesota bookstores. The second edition, with updated information, releases on March 15th. This has been the most notorious podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. Visit my most notorious page on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at Eric Rivenis. Have a safe tomorrow, and I'll talk to you soon.